Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. In 10th grade at the Princeton Day School in 1980 in central New Jersey, a classmate, Aaron Wolf, and I wrote a song called Wilson, Can You Have Fun? about a tyrannical leader who ruled over the mystical land of Gamehenge. We sang it to Trey, who loved it. Then a few years later, in 1984, Trey and I wrote Iculus in his dad's kitchen, me singing harmony while Trey sang and played electric. In that first version, you hear us mentioning a weird word over and over. It's Nayarta, which is incidentally the earliest conception of, and the actual name of, the Helping Friendly book, which eventually will play a big role in the Gamehenge saga. Then Trey went back to Vermont in 1985 and ultimately to Goddard College, and I soon sent him a poem called McGrupp and the Watchful Hosemasters. He called me and told me he loved it and that he's writing a song around it. It was about the march of Colonel Forbin and his fleet hound called McGrupp. Little did I know that a couple years later, the man who stepped into yesterday, the mythical tale about the land of Gamehenge, would be completed as Trey's senior thesis at Goddard College. Nor did I imagine that McGrupp, Iculus, and Wilson would form the centerpiece of a story that would add to Fish's lore and mystery. As Gamehenge seemingly became Fish's secret religion, and seeing a so-called Gamehenge show would be a badge of honor among fans. And those tapes would be intensely sought after and spread far and wide. And the Gamehenge saga would intrigue and beguile people for decades to come. This episode of Undermine, we're back with RJB, Matt Dwyer, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook to talk about fish in 1987 and 1988. 
they'll discuss how the band's sound changed as they solidified into the four-piece they are today, how new songs changed their playing and approach to the live shows, and how an excursion to Colorado in 88 affected the band's development. The guys will also discuss the importance of the man who stepped into yesterday and take a close look at the Nectar's show on March 12, 1988, the first time Gamehenge was played live. We'll dive in after a quick word from our sponsors. By 1987, Page was helping to define the sound of this growing band. They had started to play Nectars regularly and had ventured outside of Vermont to play shows. During this time, Trey also started playing a blonde guitar made by his friend Paul Languedoc, which offered sustained, warmer notes and lustrous harmonics that would come to define his guitar playing and sound. We're going to jump in with RJ, Matt, Jonathan, and Brad to talk about this changing sound. You heard last episode from Don Hart and Drew Hitz, who talked about some of those early compositions, which I thought was really interesting. And so hope you guys enjoyed that. We're going to take a dive into 1987 and 1988. We're going to look at some shows and we're going to talk about a very special mythology. We're going to go through a few major themes and we want to start by talking about the sound. We talked a little bit last time we were together about how the sound kind of shifted when Jeff left the band and how it became a four piece and Paige became a lot more prevalent in the, in the mix. And we wanted to talk about that in a little bit more context as it relates to 87 and 88. And I feel like once I started listening to these early 87 shows, I heard Paige in so much more depth and felt like he was filling like so much more of the sound than than I maybe gave it credit for when I used to go back to 87 shows. I guess I found that through this whole project, like I'm paying so much more attention to what each of the guys are doing, but there's one point in the 429-87 Skin It Back where Paige is using this like, kind of like droning sound with some kind of keyboard thing in the background and it, it, it could have been there for the Baker's Dozen. That was one thing I noticed in terms of how the sound changed. Did you guys hear that or, or what else did you hear as, as things start to evolve as a four piece? When we talked to Jeff, he commented on the fact that when he left, he recognized that he was creating a space for Trey. And I think that's definitely true. You hear Trey, obviously he's the dominant soloing instrument at this point, particularly, you know, there's not a second guitar that he has to, you know, share time with or harmonize with or anything like that. Um, his departure opens up a lot of space for Paige. Um, Paige can kind of step in and fill some of those gaps around the, the rhythmic components that Jeff might have been doing to support some of Trey's soloing. If you listen to a show like March 23rd, 1987 uh, from Nectars, you also hear that he's way up in the mix compared to other recordings from this era. During the Mike song in particular, um, he's really kind of sparring with Trey. And it makes me wonder, I mean, it's not only that there's space for him to fill, but I wonder if in the process of mixing the show, Paul Languedoc is also having more space to push Paige up in the mix. It's very similar to what ha would happen, you know, in the 90s with Mike when fans were asking for Mike to be louder 
not only did they push him up in the mix, in the front of house mix, but also kind of worked among the band members to create a space for Mike sonically. It's also worth listening to how Trey lays back into rhythm as the rest of the band grooves and Paige takes leads too. Uh, a notable example would be like the extended jam on Quinn from March 6, 1987. Mike uh, is also leading things a bit more. You can hear that like in the uh, Ride Captain Ride into Dave's Energy Guide from the March 23rd show. Um, overall, you can really hear like the sound of fish really, really starting to happen. You know, the compositional elements are starting to take shape with things like the Lushington uh, that later became part of Fluffhead with uh, Trey and Paige and Mike chasing each other musically. You know, you were, you were saying 30 years later at the Baker's Dozen, they could have fit in. And I think that kind of shows us how big of a, a jump or progress they've made from 83, right? It's been three plus years at this point that they've been together. And with Jeff stepping back or stepping out, I don't know how much of an alpha dog thing there was there, but now there's no doubt that Trey's the leader of the band, but he's letting everyone else kind of shine as well. And you can you can really start to hear that in 87. I think there's a huge difference between the shows we were listening to in our last episode, episode two, and what we've been listening to in 87 and 88. I went back to the fish book and there's a lot more sort of pointed comments about Jeff and Jeff's contributions and departure. I I think that that book actually was probably like the foundation for a lot of the mythology about Jeff and like in terms of him not agreeing with where they were going compositionally and didn't like where they were going sound wise. And he's out and Paige is like fully in. A lot of things that he was probably doing before are coming to the forefront a little bit more. There's more space for them to come out. There's not, you know, if Trey's taking a solo, there's not two kind of, you know, mid-rangey instruments playing chords at the same time. So they don't have to dance around each other. And so Paige can play a piano or or a Rhodes or organ, and it's going to come through because there's not that much competition in that part of the frequency spectrum. I think the other thing, just in terms of jamming, you know, which comes out during this period, the jamming is a lot different. Uh, They're not just playing R&B covers or Dead covers or Almond covers and just kind of noodling on them as we heard in the, le- the first couple of years. Here, the jamming is real jamming and it's it's jamming as they would do for the rest of their career and still do today. And if you look at the details, you know, Paige in the spring of 87 graduates and he writes his thesis in improv piano. So he's obviously focusing on this stuff a lot. He talks about how he struggled to read music and once he started playing by ear, uh, his playing really opened up and you hear that coming out in in this era and then obviously you know the the other guys are practicing like crazy they're practicing as a group who knows how much of this you can attribute to jeff's departure or if it was just sort of the natural maturity of the band you know listen to july 23rd 1988 for example which is billed as the fabulous fish fest which was a lot of local musicians uh including actually dave grippo getting together to jam. There's guest musicians all throughout the set. This tape opens up with just a jam among the musicians. 
And it's, you know, what we would call today a type two jam. I mean, they're not just vamping and having somebody solo. They're driving each other forward. There's a lot of interplay. So by this point, three and a half years or so into playing together as a band, they've hit that point where, you know, they, they are really uh, able to jam together. On August 21st of 87, the way they stretch and blow out that mic song into this like crazy tense jam, it sounds akin to an element of Fluffhead, but you know, really moves through a bunch of different things for landing in a, a huge hold your head up tease. It's outstanding. As Matt says, this is when it, they're really starting to push out into type two jamming, into creative on the fly uh, improv. And that mic song, it's really not like the one from just a couple days later on 829, which is a little more like what you might hear later on, a little more standard, but stretched. All of that is is quite different from the jamming on, say, the skin it back into low rider, the back porch boogie and a sloth sequence from the prior set of that same show. It, it And 88 also has a lot of great jamming. I, I think, you know, there's the 2388 David Bowie is, a, you know, a possible under the radar choice. And for the type one fans, I would point to that 52488 set too. There's an, it's an hour long with three songs, but it's Jesus Just Left Chicago, Fluffhead, and then a 26 minute whipping post that is, that'd just tire you out. It's amazing. We we have to. I want to talk about five twenty four eighty eight because that was a, a rediscovery for me in this listening journey. But we have to go back to Ian's farm because I, I think that was like it was the tape to have from that period, right? Like it was the first set of tapes I had from eighty seven for sure. And Eric Larson mentioned this in episode three, but man, there were so many dogs barking. There's like dogs everywhere. It's not just like, you know, a couple dogs, like during some of those songs, you know, and they're, they obviously respond, respond to it. Trey's tone in that show to me was like, it sounded different, but I don't know. There's, there's equipment changes and then there's like skill. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but the funky bitch from Ian's farm, I listened to and was like, holy shit, man, he sounds like a serious guitarist. If you listen chronologically, to me, that was like one of the moments that I realized that. And then I started thinking about when he first used the Languedoc and I asked Ryan from Trey's Guitar Rig and we we did, we were able to narrow it down, Matt, but it's not maybe because of the guitar because he probably was using the first Languedoc at Ian's Farm, possibly. It was like definitely in the middle of 87. We we know that it's between 520, 87 and 86. 88. Those are the two <laughs> milestones we have. That gets, that's but narrowed, yeah. It's pretty narrow. Pretty I mean, close. you know, in the in the relative history of fish, it's pretty <laughs> narrow. But but Matt, do you 
Do you hear that same ch- change in sound from Trey, or is it more that just his playing is is better? I think his playing is is better. He's become a really, really great guitarist, approaching kind of the peak of his skills that would last from this point in 87, you know, for the next 15 years at least. You made a comment to me before about as we were kind of researching this, you know, that we should probably be able to find out the point at which he started using the language doc guitar because there would be some sort of marked, you know, change in his tone. We'd be able to hear it. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, when I listen to a lot of these early shows, you know, guitarists will always say the tone comes from the fingers. And and I think that is true, especially for a guitarist like Trey. No matter what guitar he picks up, he's going to sound like Trey. A great example of that is, you know, for the Casvod Vox in Halloween of 2018, and then again, New Year's Eve, when they played Say to Me Santos at uh, midnight, um, he was playing a Strat, and it still sounds like Trey. And if you didn't know any better from having the visual, you would probably think that he was playing one of his Languedoc guitars. And I think that's the case here. You, there's not like a necessarily like a big cutoff. However, we thought we'd go right to the source. We had an opportunity to speak with Paul Languedoc and ask him about uh, many things, including when he thinks Trey started to play this guitar, and here's what he had to say. When he got that first guitar, probably fall of 1987 or so, I don't remember exactly what gig, what the first gig was, to be honest. The first time he played it was in the shop. I finished it, and he came, and we set up some speakers, and he played it there, I think. That was the first time. I was worried, too, I think, you know, like maybe I created a a big lemon, you know. He just needed a little time with it, that's all, you know. Uh, You know, it was pretty clear. I I don't have strong memories of the timeline, you know, to be honest, but I think it was pretty clear within the first gig that he was happy with it. He was getting used to it. He, He may have better memories of it than I do. So awesome to hear that directly from Paul. Um, as you can hear, he doesn't know exactly when Trey started playing that guitar, um, but we'll be hearing a lot more from Paul in future episodes this season as well. So Brad, everyone's coming together and getting tighter, and I think the playing is much better, and Paige is becoming a little bit more out front. Is there anything else that you that you heard sound-wise coming out of these, this couple of years yeah going to ian's farm the show specifically we were talking about three sets in the first set the light up or leave me alone cover i think it it should be mentioned i think it's the second time they played it they're going away from the dead and almond covers to more composed covers and i think this is a pretty good highlight of that they're focusing more on composition tighter playing and they're just kind of noodling you know, over some dead covers. So, you know, other than the show we're going to talk about later, I think everybody's got to go back to the Ian's Farm show. I mean, even in like the 86 stuff, there's this, I don't know what show it is now, but there's this one tape. I think the show kind of, it's, you know, one of the typical partial shows where we don't have the whole recording, but you hear somebody in the audience quoting cities. It's the same kind of rowdies, uh, probably a lot of friends, people they're familiar with, particularly in the Burlington or the branch or, you know, all of those familiar venues. What's interesting is, is when they push out and try to find... Uh, new faces to play to. Yeah. 
<laughs> I remember this, uh, one of the Nectar's ADH shows, you still hear Paige like at the set break talking about tipping your bartenders, which is like, <laughs> it's just so great. I don't know when they stopped doing that, but that's just like such a great, such a great bar band. I think when they got to <laughs> yeah. MSG, that was, uh, that was probably the last time. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Tip those waitresses and bartenders. They love it. Along with the evolving sound, these years also featured a torrent of new songs. These were brand new songs like The Curtain With, which Mark Daubert and Trey wrote, and I Am Hydrogen, which Trey, Mark, and I wrote. I Am Hydrogen is a name we took from the title of a painting in an art book. Another painting in that book is called the man who stepped into yesterday. As they introduced new songs, some of the older songs were being discarded, scrapped for parts, which were pieced together into stronger compositions. More covers were introduced as well, which reflected a diversity in styles that also allowed the band members each to shine even more. Here are the guys to talk about this new material. In terms of new songs, I, I love the first couple versions of Who Do We Do, which was later merged into Fluffhead, especially the 42487 version, which has this little extra jam in between I Am Hydrogen and Who Do We Do. It's interesting that it was paired with Hydrogen. Weird to think of Who Do We Do, that is, as a standalone sort of song. It almost sort of tests that listener's patience, and I wonder what it would have been like to be in the room when they're playing this, where this the whole song is start-stop, or at least the first half of the song is start stop you always hear you know people clap during one of the breaks you know they think something's over but fortunately trey recognized its strength as a fragment rather than a complete thing and that you know got plugged into fluffhead which debuted during this era the full fluffhead debuted um a lot of the bits did along the along the way claude and whatnot it was it's crazy to think about any of those segments live because maybe it's just because to us they sound like part of another song but like any of them it's just like wait what are they doing they're like suddenly in a freak out thing that is not real and then they go back into a song i hear what you're saying but for me i want that so bad like i love fluffhead and no i love nothing more than to hear fish play all of fluffhead well and in full of course but you know how crazy ballistic I would go if in the middle of something else or some, you know, second set, they just played Claude out of nowhere. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Would be cool. Or the chase into Possum. Right, right. Or, you know, or, or yeah, let's play Mike's Hydrogen. Who do we do? J- just do that in 4.0 and... Well, people would be clapping during the breaks and they wouldn't know what the hell to make of it, just like they did in 1987. But again, I think Trey recognized the strengths of these individual compositions and built them out into some real powerhouses, of course. And like I said, Fluffhead came out of that. Timber Ho uh, is a cover, but that came in in this range. And I think that uh, that song to me is it's a, it's a little song, but it's a, it's a smart reimagining of this old work song that it's suddenly very fish, even though it's so if you listen to the old versions of it, it's it's nothing like what you think fish would be doing. And this is them putting their stamp on a thing. And it became a staple for 
at least the rest of the decade uh, before taking a little break. And then obviously we get Divided Sky, we get Sloth, we get Fee. These big tunes, uh, along with Gamehenge, largely stayed in the repertoire for years to come. And then there's the Curtain With. The first known uh, Total Mics was Weekapod debuted in July of 88. Um, they stopped writing songs after this, didn't they, RJ? That was it. They had enough. Yeah, right. that was it. Yeah. Uh, that was it. <laughs> there, were, there were like 70 de- debuts in 87 and 88, and then they didn't write any more songs, which was fine. Yeah, it's fine. Plenty. <laughs> that would have been almost okay, and plenty of bands have done less work than that in their entire careers. Also, I want to quickly shout out the advent of the Fish song slot. Uh, Fishman singing Sid Barrett covers really started in 87 with Terrapin and Bike, and and then uh, in, that was in the fall of 87, and then a year later he brought the vacuum out on stage again another kind of defining piece of what fish became hey you know what that's the david bowie sound in space odyssey the the curtain width in these two years is just beautiful and so patient and mature it sounds like like a like a 2013 version like the 8987 the 52488 there's so many that are just so great Quickly, I just wanted to, like, the covers, you guys mentioned, uh, Brad, you mentioned this briefly, but there are so many covers that were debuted during these two years. They were sort of moving toward these, like, more mainstream rock covers and less of, like, the Almond Dead jammy stuff, but more, like, tight, you know, songs that they could cover, like Sparks and Ride Captain Ride and Peaches and Boogie on Reggae Woman all kind of came during this period. And I guess those are more like classic bar band songs, but they kind of changed the way they approach covers. More defined songs than like open-ended covers, I guess, you know, including Take the A-Train, which debuted on 42097. I really loved that, that show. The covers sort of gave them the ability to... Like they were more structured things that they could go play four minutes. Like Trey was starting to really become a little bit more of a soloing rock star in the in the covers. And then they could like kind of stretch out in the originals, which was a little bit the opposite from the first couple of years where they were like playing whipping post for 30 minutes and then, you know, run like an antelope for four minutes or whatever. I think when you look at this era, there's obviously um, a lot of... Trey's a compositional machine at this point. I mean, it's what he's studying, so he's got collegiate reason to be doing that. He's working, he's learning a lot from from his advisors, from Ernie Stiers. Um, so there's a lot of work going in. But one of the things beyond new material that strikes me during this period is the evolution of some of the songs that they had already started playing. And as Jonathan kind of mentioned... Putting different things together, uh, different parts of songs that wind up actually becoming something else in the long run. You look at, for example, Hood, You Enjoy Myself. They're not 
complete in their final form yet until towards the end of this era. Trey's kind of tinkering with the arrangements. Listen to the beginning of a, of a Yem from 1986 or 1987. The arpeggio section in the beginning is there, but he hasn't quite figured out the balance between himself and Paige to bring out that interlocking melody that all of us would probably hum if we were to hum the song now. It's, it's, it's kind of there, he just hasn't figured out how to accentuate that and bring it out yet. When you listen to, by the end of the, the period we're talking about here, you know, spring 88, the song really starts to kind of come into its own and they're not floundering with tempos or the way that the arpeggios should be kind of like dynamically uh, compared to each other or anything like that. It's it's You Enjoy Myself and you listen to those versions from spring, summer 1988, listen to the versions on Colorado 88, it's there, it's Yem. Also, as I mentioned a second ago, Trey's willingness to leave songs or song parts behind and put the good sections into other things, as Jonathan mentioned uh, previously, all the different parts of Fluff's travels that were different songs and they eventually came together. Um, you look at the opening in the bridge of Lushington, uh, you look at Who Do We Do, those became parts of Fluffhead eventually. Look at the back half of No Dogs Allowed, which basically becomes the second half of Divided Sky. In Trey's thesis, he makes a comment uh, where he says, he f I found that my strongest skills lay in taking small bits and pieces that fail to stand on their own and designing a context in which they become purposeful. Throughout the process of writing, I found that each time I limited myself to a rigid concrete storyline, a sense of st stagnation would set in. So he's, it's kind of like the idea of failing fast, right? He doesn't get so beholden to his songs that he has to stick with them and make them a thing that's going to last. If a song's not working, he's willing to say, after the band plays it once, twice, five times, that's not working, but let me take this little snippet, this 16 bars in the middle, I'm going to keep that and I'm going to make that something else. The ability of a composer to do that is very mature, you know, that at this age he wasn't trying to turn every single thing into a song. The other thing that I hear is, you know, the, how tight the band becomes by the end of this period. And to that point, Matt, uh, our colleague Don Jenkins just recently talked to Gordon Hukalo about his experience being the engineer on Junta and, and what he experienced from the band. Let's listen to that. So I hit record and they started playing Fluffhead which was, you know, the beginning of it. Just pretty pedestrian, pretty easy going. Nothing super special. Then they kick in a Fluff's journey. And I don't know if it was my jaw that hit the floor first, my body that hit the floor first, or whatever it was. But after listening to a little bit of this and noting that they were not reading charts, this was all coming from their heads. And the changes were just unbelievably fantastic. And I'm just kind of going, oh my God, who are these guys? So, so I ran out to the, to the uh, office and I said, guys, you gotta come and... <laughs> You gotta come and hear these guys. They're just unfreaking believable. And so they do one take uh, of this tune all the way through. Uh, there's no editing involved in any of these songs. No editing whatsoever. After a quick break, we'll discuss the influence of Trey's thesis, the legacy of the Gamehenge story, and Fish's big trip to Colorado in 1988. 
In the summer of 1984, Trey and I wrote Iculus, completely based around the joke, read Iculus or Ridiculous, in his dad's kitchen. We had been pounding on pots and pans in the kitchen floor, and we were cracking ourselves up to the point of tears. time, I didn't imagine that Iculus would be a prophet who wrote the Helping Friendly book, also the only person who could help the lizards restore Gamehenge to peace and tranquility. But by 1988, this story and Iculus took on a meaning that still occupies valuable real estate in the minds of many fish fans. We're going to go back to RJ, Matt, Jonathan, and Brad to hear them talk about Trey's thesis, the story of Gamehenge, and the importance of the March 12, 1988 show where the story was performed live for the first time. On the first page of his senior thesis, Trey wrote, About a year and a half ago, I received a letter in the mail from an old high school buddy. It was an odd letter, containing none of the formalities so commonly found in a correspondence between friends. Instead, when I opened the envelope, I discovered a poem. Here's what it said. I've alternated my meager flock to the shores of the Baltic Sea, and it goes on to quote all of McGrupp, obviously from Tom, and Trey said that he mounted the poem on his door, where it remained for a year when he was working on Gus and the Christmas Dog, which Brad mentioned, which I guess was like a play he was working on for kids with his mom, and he wanted something, quote, more engaging, both musically and thematically, and decided to do this project, which is an interpretation of this poem, McGrupp, as a musical. And that's sort of where this all started, which is wild. And he mentions also in the first couple of pages that he took Wilson, which I think he described as basically nonsensical, and kind of took it and changed some words around and combined those two songs, reworked a bunch of other songs, which we should talk about, wrote a bunch of new ones, and that became the basis for Gamehenge. But I think it's really interesting that Lizards, which debuted on January 27th of 1988, kind of became the glue for Gamehenge. And Trey talks about that a lot, that it, it was sort of the song that he that he wrote first and that kind of started the story for him. And he said, I wanted an extremely danceable beat and memorable lyrics, which I think for the Lizards, I feel like he's delivered on. So the first performance of Game Henge, which was March 12th, 1988, and Nectar's. On Fish.com, they said this gig was longtime manager John Paluska's introduction to the band when he wandered into Nectar's with members of Ninja Custodian after a late season ski outing. Zappa played that night in Burlington. Some, if not all, the band members attended. Page recalled fondly his memory of Frank holding up a Fish logo shirt thrown on stage by, quote, the audience. Apparently this was a multi-set show and apparently it was called Storytime at Nectar's. So this 31288 show, guys, it's it's historic and uh, there's still a lot of mystery even though we got some detail on it, but it's still like, why, why did this happen? It's a very odd 
odd thing to consider to the point where there's almost part of me that wants to believe that this is the result of many people with years under their belts between this era and recounting confusing multiple events and blending them into one magical <laughs> evening. I mean, that's a lot to happen in one night, right? I mean, this Game Henge, The Man Who Steps Into Yesterday, is not complete yet, but it, it's debuted in the show and kind of without fanfare. Like, it's not like there's this part of the beginning of the show tree is like, okay, listen, here's what I'm going to do, guys. I'm going to play my new musical for you. They just start doing it in, with narration. They've seen Zappa that night, uh, which is the first and only time that apparently there was this fish Zappa convergence with the t-shirt and everything. And John Paluska just happens to see the band on that night for the first time. <laughs> it, it, it seems a little bit too convenient, but I think it's probably the truth that there was this magical night that launched so much of the band's career afterwards. I mean, it's crazy. Well, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but Gamehenge is mythology. So why wouldn't the debut of Gamehenge be kind of shrouded in its own mythology? And like most mythology, it's probably entirely real. Entirely real. My famous mockingbird There's a lot of magic in the air that night in in Burlington, and going back to the show. Now, there's only one set, right? We don't. We only have one set, but we only have. But apparently, it was multiple. I mean, that's the right. Yeah. This show, though, is it's interesting because so apparently Trey completed his thesis in June, right? So as you were, I think you mentioned that Matt that this was like an incomplete or or it was a work in progress, which is you know at that point they were pretty good at practicing and getting things really tight but it was clear that they had they had played these songs before even though on that night there there were debuts but debuts either that like set list that we don't have or just a lot of practice not that many debuts uh teal has debuted that night um and it's it's not in its final form yet uh it it's mostly just trey and page it's beautiful for the first part of the song and it has a completely different bridge and coda Forbins is debuted that night, but the rest of the material in Gamehenge is uh, had been played before, just hadn't been played together in this order with the narration. And this wasn't even the final version of what would happen. By the time the band lays it down and Trey sequences it for the man who stepped into yesterday thesis and, and recording that July, he's resequenced the entire thing and restructured the narration and stuff. So, I mean, I don't think that I was kind of being facetious earlier. I mean, it's not surprising that they would have played this on stage um, given their, you know, how often they played in Nectars. They, a lot of times were probably just like, you know, wanting to change things up and not just have to write a regular old set list or something like that. And probably some degree of testing it out with the audience and seeing like, is this a cool thing or is this just like a geeky school project? 
On July 11, 1988, Trey's thesis, entitled The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday, was submitted to Goddard College in partial fulfillment of the requirements for his bachelor's degree. On August 28, 1988, having returned from the band's first trip outside of New England and shaking off the cobwebs of a late gig in Pennsylvania the night before, Trey was formally introduced as a graduate of Goddard by his advisor, Lois Harris. Trey is a creative dynamo, he's a comet, and really musical. I'm not sure yet how it's going to be staged. We've played with puppets and various kinds of stage presentations of it, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but I know what it sounds like, and it sounds terrific. Uh, the story takes us on a compelling journey through the adventures of Colonel Corbin, a character bearing no resemblance to one's typical hero. Trey's ability to turn the story, to challenge what we, look, what we at first think of as good or heroic, and to consider with the audience the human tendency to authoritarianism. Beyond that, Trey has a, has a, has a terrific capacity as a, as a composer, and that is to listen to everything so intently, to take it in, to make it his own, much like Stravinsky. Uh, and it's, it's really quite phenomenal to watch him then work that material uh, into something that's, that's truly his own in terms of personal style and truly creative, uh, imaginative, and exciting and wonderful as music. He's going to go far. I'm very pleased and proud to introduce you to him today. Let's take a look at how this collegiate work at Goddard College would go on to affect Fish's playing both in the 80s and throughout the rest of their career. What do you guys think about like Colonel Forbin is the hero of of the man who stepped in yesterday? And I don't know, on on one hand, like the whole story is kind of a classic story of like struggle and power and overcoming obstacles and politics and oppression and survival. And, you know, that's a lot of stuff. But um I guess like it's it feels uniquely ours as fish fans, and it doesn't seem like to me, the story itself has like lived on as much of the as the mythology. But I'm curious, Jonathan, do you have thoughts on that? Like, do you feel like the story and the music kind of live on as a piece? Well, I mean, sure they do, as long as we we listen to them. I mean, the story itself, it's not a huge stretch insofar as the hero journey archetypes, uh, you know, but it's infused with a number of themes and ideas that the audience has taken into their hearts. I mean, first of all, I think Trey's sense of humor kind of drives the thing. I mean, Rutherford just jumps right into the river in his armor. That's ridiculous. I love it. And uh, <laughs> and I think that humor and the magical kind of fantastic setting holds it together. When they were willing to play it all together and put it together, uh, it hangs together nicely because of that. Um, and also, you know, Fish was not apolitical in the 80s, though they weren't entirely serious in their approach to political material. So it's like, dear Mrs. Reagan, you know, it's political, but it's, you know, it's it's a, also a gag. Um, and yeah. so there's a bit of that. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm not I don't I'm not sure this is really a political story so much as the evil overlord. It's just a device. Um, and, you know, the unexpected hero thrust into the conflict. You got the down presser who must be defeated, a little romantic love. Then, uh, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, sort of cynical ending. 
Um, and that connects to kind of the broader mm. philosophical, one of the big broad philosophical points, which is the uh, all knowledge seeming innocent and pure becomes a deadly weapon in the hands of avarice and greed. You know, that's a great one. And I think that it's, but it's kind of universal. It's it's known from all kinds of angles and not just, it's not like fish is shining the light on something we've never heard. Um, I think the one that fans embrace the most, particularly in the earlier half of Fish's run is surrender to the flow. I think modern day fish fans surrender a lot less. The internet reveals that to us. The helping friendly book it seemed possessed the ancient secrets of eternal joy and never ending splendor. The trick was to surrender to the flow. I think to say that it has some sort of deeper political meaning or metaphor or something like that is probably giving it a little bit too much credit. Trey even says in his thesis here, you know, he says, you know, it seemed natural to let the plot develop as the thing grew song by song. Of course, with each new song, the plot became less and less flexible. But even when writing the very last song, I found that it was better not to get hung up on details. What he described was the fact that he didn't write a story in advance and then write songs to flesh out parts of the story. He just kept writing songs and then saying like, you know, I mean, he started with Wilson and McGrupp and was like, okay, how can I make a story out of this? And then he wrote Lizards. And then it was like, okay, well, maybe this is a little bit more of a story. And he just kept adding on. So I don't think that there was some premeditated like plot line that he was trying to describe. He kind of pulled a story together. The funny thing to me about that is that he describes the um the work and his advisor described the work at his at his graduation ceremony as a musical um which of course has a lot of meaning given some of the things that he's done in the past decade but it's funny to me because when i look at this method of putting the whole thing together it seems a lot more like a rock opera which would have been very influential to trey at the time as well he also calls out the lamb lies down on broadway in his thesis And my opinion of rock operas, even though I love so many of them, is that generally by about side three, the story kind of falls apart and you get to the end and you're like, I think I could tell you what happened in that, but it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. And we've talked about that on the on our show uh, in the past. So to me, it's it's I I, to get back to your question, RJ, I don't think this was like I'm going to tell a story about like politics and survival and stuff. Instead, it was just like. Okay, cool. We got McGrupp, we got Forbin, we got some lizard people, we got Aculus. Let's let's put it in the stew and see what happens. I kind of, on Matt's team here, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of deep meaning. I think about Zeppelin's constant uh, quoting or, or reference to The Hobbit and all those stories. Uh, and it's not serious like that. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not as serious as those stories, but it's kind of the same sort of fantastical theme that we can get from it. I'm also always shocked about, it's not that long. I always expect it to be longer. Um, I want it to be longer, I guess. And I guess it's nice for a, for one set. So the music is what sticks out to me, I guess, not the story, although Trey's telling, telling of the story. In this first one, I, I found his narration not as great as it is in the later um, rendition. So um, it's fun to go back to, but I think there's better game hinges. You know, I'm not saying Trey studied Joseph Campbell to write this thing. Uh, the tropes are readily available <laughs> and in so much literature and film, it's not a stretch to, you know, pull them together with just his own sense of story, trying to hang the songs together. Um, but I think those things that I mentioned, they're in there 
whether he plotted them madly or whether they came naturally because he's read a few books before. I think it works. And I think it I think it makes it pretty much through side four. I want to call out two other uh, components of Trey's thesis, which I think are important when you look at the entire career of the band. One is that he references um, composing songs that are danceable. Uh, and that's something that he talked about at Coventry when he talked about writing David Bowie in the curtain with that he was trying to push the envelope of how complex he could make songs while still keep people dancing, uh, which is really interesting. The other thing is that he talks about writing The Lizards, and he said that he started work on this piece in Ireland where I, I spent the break between semesters. Ireland's music had a profound effect on me. I spent a lot of time with a guitarist there who would go from pub to pub night after night singing and playing with the people. It was a different situation than I had ever been in, and the main goal of the musicians was to bring people together. And I think, you know, that obviously speaks to the relationship between Fish and the community and the bringing together of people in celebration and almost in in sacrament uh, around this music to have a, a, a good time. But that was particularly interesting to me. I know, um, Jonathan, I know you've spent time in, in Ireland as well. It's a thing which, you know, you go into the pubs and there's the, there's the table in the corner. That's the table for the musicians. That's where the session happens. And it's, it's not like the music is the thing there. Music is a thing that is happening there. And there's people playing billiards and there's people watching the football match and there's people talking politics over in a corner. And the session is one thing that's happening there. There's not really a division between the musicians and the audience. You know, anybody could probably get up and sing a tune. The musicians don't kind of keep themselves at arm's length from the audience. It's all one thing that's happening there, which I think is very, very indicative of the relationship between Fish and the audience. And obviously to the point where Trey actually kind of documents it here as as an eye-opening experience. For many Fish fans, the man who stepped into yesterday's story, also just called Gamehenge, captivated their attention and added another layer of depth and mystery to a band already hard to categorize or define. Wait, they also have a rock opera? As Fish was introducing this new saga and song cycle to audiences in the Northeast, they were also expanding beyond the borders of Vermont. Let's go back to the guys to talk about the big trip to Colorado and the growth beyond Vermont in the late 80s. All right, so we're going to talk briefly about Fish's ventures outside of Vermont, which which started in the 80s. I think the first New York City gig was March 31st, 88, um, in New York City, and there was a there was a show at Amherst. I think that was in April 88, where they played at Paluska's house after he randomly wandered into their magical game hen show and so they're, they're they're getting outside of vermont but there's this epic colorado trip which everyone has heard about and i just want to give a little bit of a backstory because i was refreshing my memory and i just thought this was so interesting so mike had said that this trip came about the colorado 88 trip because his fiance was waitressing in telluride working for a guy named warren stickney and he promised to book them a month-long tour across the country and they didn't hear from him for months, I mean, after they agreed. 
And a week before they were supposed to leave for Colorado, he said, I don't know if I can get you any other gigs, but you can play at my place and I'll pay you a thousand bucks. So they drove in what they described, and, and there's a picture, a windowless truck with six dudes. Mike said they didn't stop at a rest area for 40 hours after leaving Vermont and that the van got pretty disgusting, which is just weird. And I had forgotten about all this, but once they got there, they found out that this guy, uh, Warren Stickney, was kind of a scam artist, and there were pictures posted of him all around Telluride that said, a picture of him that said, Baby Huey, go home. So they made their own posters of this run of shows in Telluride that said, New England's most naive rock and roll band. We drove 2,000 miles because Warren Stickney promised us a thousand bucks. And they did eventually get paid that thousand dollars. And then apparently it was stolen on their way back at a stay in Aspen. So I think they went back empty handed, which is. And Mike said in the fish book that other than that, our first trip out of Vermont was a was a huge success. So um, it's just amazing backstory. And and one other thing that the iconic photo of, of Paige and Trey carrying the keyboard across the street which they recreated last last year for the december sessions so they weren't getting crowds at the roma which is where they were booked to play because everyone was boycotting the place because of warren stickney uh, apparently scamming everyone in the town out of money so they got a gig at the fly me to the moon saloon which was across the street so that photo is actually of them carrying their instruments across the street to this other bar on their off day from the roma to to actually draw a crowd and apparently fishman said they ran out of alcohol alcohol and um, it was crowded and then they went back to the Roma for the remaining shows where they played to pretty much empty rooms so kind of a classic band travels a long distance and then like it doesn't really turn out but um still remains incredibly valuable in terms of fish history right we got a we got a colorado 88 release and i don't know if you guys feel like these shows were particularly notable but the trip itself and kind of the first trip to colorado was was notable i think the posters that they made are perfect what a ridiculous leap of faith they took i mean ultimately colorado has become a stronghold from fish so it paid off but it's certainly a good indicator that Fish was willing to hold up their end in any venture that might further the cause of the band. And that is what it takes to make it in music. It doesn't guarantee you'll make it, but you have to be willing to go a thousand extra miles. It's really bold, arguably foolish, completely admirable. Uh, the music, I think it turns out is pretty good. I think it had to be validating also to them, despite the financial debacle of the whole thing, that they could transplant themselves elsewhere and find an audience and and do well, leaving aside the fact that nobody wanted to go into the Roma because of the guy who ran the place, but they could go next door, cross the street, and really kill. I think that's a good, that had to be very validating for them. As we know from listening to the tapes, they were delivering just as strong in Colorado as they were in Vermont. They were taking their A-game, and uh, their A-game kind of works. The question for me, coming back from that trip, and, uh, and hopefully we'll explore this in the future uh, as we get into the rest of 1988 and 1989, is this represents the band leaving Vermont, right? They hadn't really gotten much outside of New England at that point, but now they're starting to think about getting out of Vermont. And as they came back, 
and they're not just playing in nectars every night or hunts every night or whatever, did they start to take fewer risks because now they could go to a new city and have a new audience and that they didn't need to do anything crazy. They could play their somewhat, you know, air quote, standard set and blow people's minds. And, you know, by this point, every time they played Nectars, they were probably playing to a lot of the same people. And so they probably felt this drive to keep it fresh, to do funny things, to have sit-ins, to debut new music. Did the journey outside of New England drive them to just kind of become a really, really good version of themselves and abandon some of that? Or did it just inspire them to become even wilder as they went city, from city to city? And I think we'll discover that as we uh, as we go forward. Let's hear from the guys one last time about their takeaways from 1987 and 1988. All right, guys, let's end with a quick roundup takeaways from this era i want to start i just want to say this listening experience is taking me back to my tape collecting days and ian's farm and the game hen show from 88 and how interesting and important it was to get those early tapes and just how you know you get those tapes from 1987 and you're like you feel like you've discovered a world that you didn't previously know existed and i just think that's like such a we take it for granted obviously because i listen to all of these shows by just clicking you know on a on an internet thing and it was such a beautiful experience to get an early show and hear these kind of like slightly raw recordings but I also felt like going back to these shows I felt like for the first time kind of immersing myself in it that I could like understand what it was like to be there and to be in Burlington at the time when they were coming up between the thesis and the kind of evolution and them leaving and coming back and it just seems like they were totally dedicated to the music and they were evolving really quickly and I bet being around that at the time was was really cool to just be a part of. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Hearing these recordings as well as the stories that we've heard from the people that were there at that time has ignited my interest in this period like I've never had before. I'm listening to the tapes now and I'm thinking about Eric Larson, for example, describing when he listens to the tapes, he hears the voices of his friends that were there. And I'm just thinking about, you know, bands that I've been around that never made it, never, never went anywhere. But to think about, like, if you listen to those recordings and thought about the, that scene, the time that we had and the interactions we had between different people in the scene that was built around just of friends, it's really fascinating to me now. And I think I'm going to find myself going back and listening to a lot of 87 and 88 Fish more than I ever have from this point forward. In terms of encapsulating everything that we listened to from this period, by the end of 1988, they are fish. Right. I mean, I think as a time traveler, you could go back to that period and you could play a recording of Fish from 2, 5, 10, 15, 25, 30 years later for somebody in their sphere at that point. And they probably wouldn't be too shocked by what they heard. They would probably say like, yeah, that sounds like this band. That sounds like where 
they're headed. The jamming aside, because there's evolution of the jamming, and we've talked at length about that in the past, but the songs, the sound, the ethos of the thing, it's there. Uh, and they're a great, great band at this point. Songs like Yem, songs like Bowie, Hood, they're in their final form, they're ready to be played hundreds of times, and they play them confidently. They've not only found the arrangements of those songs, but they've found the meaning of the compositions, and they know how to play it and how to get it across to the audience. Now that they've done that in Burlington, and they've tested the waters by going to a new place uh, in Colorado, they're ready to hit the road. They're, they're looking outward. Trey's finished school, Paige has finished school by this point, Mike has finished school. Fishman will eventually, you know, turn in thesis. <laughs> But they, they've kind of created the model and they're ready to franchise it. They're ready to go to different cities and set up roots and say, we are fish, come to us, be fans of ours. Uh, and I think that's a great thing. And I'm excited to hear what, what happens next. For me, it was a pleasant jump from those early shows to these 87, 88 shows. It was more of the fish I knew, more of the fish I wanted. We had the templates for all those songs you mentioned, the Ernie Styers era is kind of how I describe it, where all these really wonderfully long and intricate but yet dancey songs divided sky all this all the songs you mentioned the curtain with antelopes are now as you recognize them um today i think uh so yeah i agree that going back to this era is a lot easier than it was you know the, the earlier the, the very early stuff the other takeaway i have is it's mind-blowing to me that reba isn't part of this yet. Reba isn't around until October of 89, and I feel like it should be here. I feel like going back to these 87, 88 shows, where's where's Reba, you know? Uh, it's not, so um, it's it's awesome that we've still got a lot of growth ahead of us, even though it's kind of the band we recognize. Obviously, as we all know, it's it's nothing but up from here. <laughs> so this is this era is the source. This, so many of the big songs, so much of the core material that they would push through the rest of their career stuff that is now the most widely well-regarded amongst fans is, is here. Not that they wouldn't keep producing great material, but this is the, the true foundation of Fish. Divided Sky is essentially complete in late 88. That composition that they take and they just give it life on all the stages, as you said, Matt, uh, going forward. But it, here is where it's written. You know, Fluffhead is assembled and complete here, Mike's groove. Even the covers feel more like Fish. I listened to 924.88 today, and the, the bold is love. Aside from the equipment they're playing through, it sounds an awful lot like the band I saw play that same song six years later. I think we're, we're all echoing each other for the same reason, because we're, it's very true that this is who Fish was meant to become, and you, you hear it right here. We're going to keep exploring D80s. We have some more road to cover. And, and those of you who have listened to HFPod in the past know that we've had some debates about the song Possum. And as I went back through Trey's thesis, I discovered something incredibly um, enlightening about Possum. And I just want to leave you with this. This is a quote from Trey's thesis. Your end is the road is supposed to mean that something that seems important at the moment is all part of a greater flow of things. And that to be happy one must just realize the inevitability of things. I've told you so many times that Possum is a kick-ass song. It's it's a, another bit of philosophy. It's like a Zen cone. It seems like a simple phrase, or in this case, a lyric. It could be easily dismissed, but it's loaded with meaning. Plus, it's a boogie. Come from top the mountain, baby, where the people come to pray. 
come from top the mountain, baby. It's clear that by 1988, Fish was ready to take it to the next level musically and career-wise. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from Undermine hosts David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, who will take a look at Fish's westward movement across the United States, how the band was honing their improvisational technique and their songwriting, as well as their influences at that time. Thanks for listening. Undermine is sponsored by Upslope Brewing Company. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah X. Steen. Production assistance by Christina Collins and Dawn Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.